Now, we've been going through Nehemiah. We've looked at chapters 1 through 7, but today we're going to be looking at chapter 8. And as I look at this chapter, as I look at the emphasis that is placed on the law and the word of God that these people had, it really encourages me to think that people like Mark and people like Don are out in high schools, in Fishers, sharing that word with the students that go there. And so I just want to thank them for being here this morning. Thank you for all the ministry they're doing. And I hope and pray that as you heard those stories, as you heard the stories of lives that are being changed through crew, that you're just that much more encouraged to support them financially and to support them with your prayers. So I hope that you will continue to do that. So we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 8 today. But before we do that, I'm going to ask that you pray with me. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you that you have blessed our church and blessed us as individuals in such a way that we can see the kinds of things that are happening with crew and see the work that you're doing through Mark and through Dawn and through their family and through that ministry. And so, God, I pray that as we read your word today, as we study the story of Nehemiah, continuing on through that, uh, that you will help our eyes and help our hearts and help our minds be focused on you. God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we ask these things in his name. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one in the chair right underneath you. We'll also have verses up on the screen if you'd like to use those. And feel free to grab a Bible before you leave from the welcome desk if you don't own one. But Nehemiah chapter 8. We've been in chapters 1 through 7. We've seen Nehemiah dealing with all these issues and all these conflicts with this building project. He hears that the wall in Jerusalem is torn down. He wants to rebuild it. He gets permission from King Artaxerxes to return to Jerusalem, rebuild the wall. He sells the people on this vision of why the wall needs to be rebuilt, because the temple is defenseless, and the people buy in. But then there are also enemies who are not too crazy about the idea of Jerusalem being back on top, of Jerusalem being the kind of city that once again glorifies God, having its rightful place glorifying God. Sambalad and Tobiah and Geshem, they work really hard to try and frustrate this project. They try intimidation, they try threats, they try mocking, they try everything they can think of, and yet time and time again, the project continues. And it doesn't just continue because Nehemiah is just that good of a leader. The project continues because Nehemiah is constantly leaning on God. He deals with inward conflict. He deals with outward conflict. And when we get to chapter 8, the project is finished. And we're going to see a big time change of gears here with this project. Chapters 1 through 7, all about the wall. At the end of chapter 7, the wall's done. So if you're Nehemiah, what are you thinking? You're probably thinking, you know, this has been pretty stressful. This has been a pretty high pressure job that I've been given. So you know what? I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to take some time away, find a vacation spot somewhere, and just relax. Because my job is done. The wall is built. The temple is safe. I can leave now in good conscience. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. Because he's not only concerned with the infrastructure of the city of Jerusalem. He's not just concerned with the wall itself. He's concerned about the people there. He's concerned that the people in Jerusalem aren't flourishing aren't prospering. 
And so he desires them to live the kind of lives and be the kind of city that glorifies God. And just building walls isn't going to do that. There's more work to be done. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. All week as I was studying for this sermon, every time I came across Watergate, I thought of Richard Nixon. But it's a different Watergate. So they go to the Watergate, and Ezra the scribe is going to bring the law of Moses. Now we've talked a little bit about Ezra, but don't really know a whole lot about him. So who is this guy? Who is Ezra? Well, turn to Ezra chapter 7. We're going to look at the second half of verse 6. We read in that passage that Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. It says that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra and Nehemiah, naturally, you'd think, make a pretty good team. Ezra's pretty much focused on the spiritual side of things. He comes to Jerusalem probably a little bit earlier than Nehemiah, but they cross paths and they both really want the same thing. They both want the city to prosper. They both want the city to glorify God again. So Ezra's going to read the law. Well, what exactly is the law that Ezra's even talking about here? Well, when you read that term, the law of Moses, that the Lord had commanded Israel, chances are we're talking about the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is a fancy word for the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The law was built on the Pentateuch. And so Ezra is going to read this law. Now, one thing that's important to consider, this law that Ezra is going to read, it's not just some constitution that some Israelite guys got together and made up. It's not just some ideas that Moses had and wrote down out of his own brilliance. The reason this law is so important, the reason this law matters is because it came directly from God himself. This law is important. This law was meant to be the basis for civil discussion, for civil conflict resolution. It was meant to help guide the Israelites for their physical health, for their spiritual health. It was meant to really be a basis for every decision that they made. But most importantly, the point of the law was that it would set the Israelite people apart. That it would make them different that the nations around them would see the Israelite people and would say, man, what's this God that they worship all about? Because they definitely don't really live the way we do. They show more mercy than we do. They show more grace than we do. They seem to have a different way of living. What's so different about this nation? That's the idea of the law. So today we're going to be looking at Ezra reading the law and four attitudes that the people have as Ezra reads it. And the way I want to look at this is that I think that these four attitudes the people have about the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, in this passage can really teach us a lot about our attitude 
to Scripture as a whole. We don't just look at the Pentateuch. We have additional books of the Old Testament that may have been floating around at the time, but weren't really necessarily all put together right then and there. We have the New Testament as well that is a part of what we consider our canon or our Scripture. But I think that there's a lot that we can learn from these Israelite people's relationship to the law and how we should relate to Scripture. So pick up in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, there's one thing I see right here that really shows their relationship to the book of the law. And that is, for them, the law was for everyone. In the same way, Scripture is for everyone. This past week, you might have celebrated Halloween, October 31st. But October 31st, even more importantly, is what is called Reformation Day. And Reformation Day is all about a monk named Martin Luther nailing 95 theses to the church at Wittenberg in Germany, nailing the theses to the door, opposing some of the corruption and the greed and the false teaching of the church leaders of his time. So Martin Luther, little did he know, started one of the most important events in all of history that would change things forever. And one of the core ideas of that Reformation, led by guys like Luther, led by guys like Tyndale. These guys believed that Scripture was for everyone, that every single person deserved to be able to read Scripture. It wasn't just for the church leaders. It wasn't just for the elite. It wasn't just for the academics. Every single person, the farmers, the poor, the downtrodden, they all deserve to have Scripture in a language that they could understand. Scripture is for everyone. You look at this passage and you see that Ezra reads this law in the presence of men, women, anyone who can understand. If you look at verse 4, Ezra has a little team of people that go throughout the crowd and they make sure that everyone gets what Ezra is saying. And he makes sure that everyone understands what Ezra is saying. Back to the Watergate, not the hotel. Ezra reads this law in a public forum. He doesn't read it in the temple. He doesn't read it where only the super spiritual people can go. He reads it where everyone can hear it. Scripture is for everybody. That includes all of us. Now, of course, there's always that difficult question of, well, you know what? I just, I just don't understand Scripture. I try to read it, and I don't really know what it means, and there's terms that I don't understand. How is Scripture for me? Well, we have resources to help with that. For several months now, we've had this book on our welcome desk, and this book has a chapter devoted to how to study the Bible, ways to read the Bible. It has a great overview of the story of Scripture that may be a little bit easier to understand if you're new to the Bible. Pick up one of these if you have that concern. Pick up one of these if you have a friend or a neighbor or a coworker who wants to get into Scripture but they don't really know how. Pick up one of these. We'd love for you to have it. Maybe you're looking for a Bible reading plan. We can help you with that. 
Maybe you're looking for some way to find the best translation that will be easiest for you to read. We can help you with that too. But scripture is for everyone. And we want all of us, every single one of us, to be reading it, to be immersing ourselves in it. And we will do whatever we can to help you get there. Pick up in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. That's why earlier in the service I asked Joshua to have a stand as we read scripture together. Verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The first thing we saw was that Scripture is for everyone. And the second thing that we see is an unbelievable reverence for Scripture in this people. They look at the law and they take it seriously because it is from God. I think as Christians, we're often tempted to hear the stories of the Bible, to read stories of the Bible, to see cartoons of stories of the Bible, and sometimes we take them for granted. We become so numb to them because Scripture is just there all the time. We see it on our sugar and our flour holders in our kitchen, and it's just a passing glance. We don't think anything of it. But Scripture is absolutely to be revered and respected. But at the same time, you notice with these people that when they revere scripture, it doesn't lead them to worship scripture. They're not bowing before a book. They're not bowing before a law. They're bowing before God himself. When they read scripture, when they revere it, when they take it seriously, it leads them to worship not the book, but to worship the author of the book. They bow their heads to the ground. They kneel before him. They are humbled, reading what they're reading and hearing what they're hearing. I pray that we can be the kind of church that reveres Scripture the same way that these Israelites revered the law. Pick back up in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Pick up in verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is a big one, I think, in the way that we relate to Scripture. We see here that for these people, the law, it's both a source of mourning, but it's also a source of rejoicing. This was a day that was often looked at as the agricultural new year in Israel. So this would be a day where the people would look at the crops they brought in, look at the harvest that God provided for them, and they would take some time off from all the hard labor of agriculture, and they would thank God for the bountiful harvest that he had given them that year. And they would rejoice over the harvest that God provided for them. 
But this day is a little bit different. They hear the law for the first time in quite some time, and they start weeping. They start mourning. There are moments in your life where you will read Scripture, and it will be hard. It will be convicting. It will be challenging. You'll read a passage that is relevant to some issue that you're dealing with, and it will hit you like a brick. And that's okay. Scripture is a lot like our physical food. We can't just eat everything we want all the time, or else we wouldn't be very healthy. In the same way, when we read Scripture, when those times come that we're convicted, when those times come that we are shown our guilt before God, that's okay. It might not be enjoyable, but we need it. We desperately, desperately need it. But it doesn't just stay at weeping. Scripture can be a source of rejoicing, a source of comfort. When I was a little kid, my sister and I would walk down the hallway to my parents' bedroom at night when they were getting ready for bed, and we would talk to my parents for a few minutes, trying to delay us having to go to bed. So we'd lay on the floor, my parents would be getting ready for bed and brushing their teeth and everything, and eventually my parents would get in bed and they'd say, all right, it's time for you to go to bed. No more delaying, no more stalling, go to bed. So we'd say, oh, okay. But there's one problem. There was a long, dark hallway between my parents' room and my room. And I was always scared to walk down that hallway because I never knew what was lurking in that hallway in the dark. But the way that we would often get down that hallway, my sister and I, is that we would have my mom laying in bed, from bed, sing as we're walking down the hallway to bring us comfort. And the song that she would sing, I'm not making this up, the song that she would sing went the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And as she did that, we would run down the hallway and try and make it to our rooms before we got attacked or eaten or whatever. (laughs) So, scripture was a source of comfort for us. Maybe it was more mom, maybe it was more singing, but that stuck with me. It stuck with me that scripture can be a source of comfort, it can be a source of protection, it can be a source of rejoicing. In the same way, as I read this passage, what I find really interesting is that the people of Israel... They read the law, these first five books of the Old Testament, and they rejoice over it. But here's the thing. These first five books of the Old Testament, there are some allusions to Jesus who would come in the future. There are some prophecies that Jesus would end up fulfilling, but Jesus is never mentioned by name. And yet, the people rejoice over this law. And as I think about that, I think, how much more so should we rejoice over the entirety of Scripture? Being able to open Scripture and read it through the lens of Jesus. And look at the Old Testament and realize that Christ fulfilled the one perfect sacrifice that hadn't been fulfilled before. That Christ was the answer to all of these problems in the Old Testament. He's the answer to the problem of Genesis 3, the fall of man. If they can rejoice over that, how much more so should we rejoice when we read about Christ? The sacrifice he made for us, the blood that was shed on our behalf, 
That by God's grace, he has adopted us to be part of his family when we were once enemies. How beautiful is that? And how much more so should we rejoice over it? Scripture can be hard. It can be convicting. It can be challenging. It can leave us feeling a little bit guilty at times. But it can also be a source of rejoicing. Because it points us to the answer to our guilt. It points us to the answer of our conviction. It points us to Christ. Let's rejoice over it every day. The fourth thing I want to look at with their relationship to the law and our relationship to Scripture is seen in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers, houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. As I look at this passage, we've already seen that scripture is for everyone. We've already seen that scripture is to be revered. We've already seen that scripture can be both a source of conviction and a source of rejoicing. But the fourth thing we see here is that scripture, simply put, is to be obeyed. It's that simple. You read this passage, Ezra and some Levites come together and they realize that there is this law that they haven't been following. This thing they haven't been doing that the law makes clear they should be doing. So what do they do? Do they get together and somehow debate it out? Do they get together and say, well, you know what? We haven't done that in a long time. It just seems a little bit impractical. What are we going to do? No. They do it. They obey it. The idea of the rule of the law was that the people would go out and they would make shacks for themselves, basically. And it was to remind them of what it was like when they didn't have homes, when they were wandering in the wilderness, when they had just been freed from slavery in Egypt. And it was caused to make them thankful for what God had blessed them with. When they read this law, they don't question it. They look at it, they study it, and then they come to the conclusion that, you know what, we should obey this. And then they do it. Now, sounds simple, doesn't it? Read scripture, obey scripture. But I think all of us would admit that it's not always that simple for us, is it? No, it's a challenge. It's difficult. It's hard. And more often than not, we may fail. But that's okay. Because we lean on God's grace. 
We lean on God the way Nehemiah did in every aspect of life. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. My prayer this morning is that every single one of us and our church as a whole, we would look to Scripture to be the lamp of our feet, to be the light to our paths. In every decision that we make individually, in every decision that we make as a church body. Because this book is no ordinary book. It's no ordinary law. It truly is from God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. The classic passage that is often cited when it comes to the value of Scripture. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing to Timothy, a young church leader, and you notice that Paul says that Timothy learned the sacred writings from his family, from childhood. If you're a parent, teach your child scripture. You cannot put a price tag on that. You can't put a price tag on raising your child to revere and respect the word of God. Pick up in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We as a church are committed to Scripture being our guide. No matter what kind of situations we deal with, no matter what kind of conflicts we run into, we are committed to letting this guide our teaching and guide our practice. And if that makes us stick out from the world around us, great. So be it. Thanks be to God for that. So I pray that as we read this book, understanding that this comes from God himself, that we will allow it to change us, to shape us, transform us, leave us to be people who were different than we were when we first opened it up, that we can be challenged to love God more with our heart, soul, mind, strength. We can be challenged to love our neighbor, that we can be challenged to live this out Because the Bible is not just something that we cognitively know. It's not just something we believe in our heads. It's something that changes every area of life. So my prayer this morning is that every single one of us will allow God's word to do that work in our hearts and in our minds. And I pray that we as a church can continue to have the boldness and the courage to stick to this no matter what it is that we face. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with. But God, thank you for your word. I pray that we won't approach it flippantly. I pray that we won't take it for granted because we are so blessed to have your word written to us. We are so blessed that we can open the pages of scripture and learn so much about who you are and what you've done for us the grace that you show us, the mercy that you pour out on us, the justice that you commit yourself to. 
the holiness that just leaves us in awe of you. God, I pray that we will love and adore Scripture in every area of our lives. That we'll stick to it not just in what we say, but in what we do. Not just as individuals, but as a church entirely. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, God. Thank you that we have this record of his life and his death and his resurrection. And God, thank you that we can anxiously look forward to the end of the story. The day when your son returns, when your kingdom is truly seen for what it is, when tears are wiped away and pain and suffering are gone. And truly the world and all of the cosmos are put to rights. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you're someone who is new to the idea of Scripture or the Bible, feel free to talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to direct you in any way that we can to help you get resources, to help in your efforts to study Scripture. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ and you're not so sure about all this stuff. We'd be happy to talk to you about that as well. And maybe you're not a follower of Christ and you read these words this morning and you're ready to make that decision. They'd be happy to talk to you about that as well.